Hello and welcome to the Cine Nomine podcast, episode two, titled Kids with a question mark. So today's episode, we are actually going to talk about an article from Aeon.co. That's A-E-O-N dot C-O, actually. Um, and what we're going to talk about is something called antinatalism and why it's immoral. But that's contrary to the article, which is going to argue why it is moral. So this is going to be very interesting. But first, we're going to open up the little scripture. And I'm going to do something from Psalm 25. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Do not, do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Do not let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, today, antinatalism. So, Moving on from that, we're going to say the full title of the article. Kids, just say no. You don't have to dislike children to see the harms done by having them. There is a moral case against procreation. This article was written by a lovely man named David Benatar, I think is how he pronounced his last name. And he is a professor of philosophy and the head of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town where he is also the director of the Bioethics Center. His latest book is The Human Predicament, a candid guide of the biggest life's qu- of life's biggest questions. That is just a little snippet of him. I, that's also from the article, which I do plan to uh, link in the description. Hopefully I remember to do that. But just kind of move on from that. Just going to kind of go over like a brief, sum- a semi-brief summary of just what the article is about, and then I'm going to kind of just give my thoughts after that. So opening up, David introduces uh, his article with a book he written he wrote in 2006 called Better Never to Have Been. And in that, he argues that it's better to never have been born, which that position is called antinatalism, which is going to be our quote-unquote topic for the day. So... In the beginning, right after he gives his little introductory paragraph, he kind of cites a short story of a lady who kind of sent him this little thing of just kind of like reinforcing David's idea of antinatalism. And so she just kind of goes about how she's constantly mocked openly by strangers in public of how ugly she is in the streets. Um, And with that, she's also 
was diagnosed with a congenital heart disease and had a high risk of dying from heart failure, as probably already had heart problems before then to get diagnosed with that. And then she concludes at the end of her little comment that it was really a selfish thing for her parents to have her be born. Um, And then from there, David, the writer, establishes kind of like the foundation of the legitimacy of his argument and then continues to then show the history of the position by bringing up something from a work that Sophocles wrote called Oedipus at Colonus, and then also kind of talking about Buddhism and Hinduism and how they have a negative view on existence, though they do not go so far as to oppose procreation. And then also goes on to say, quote, antinatalism will only ever be a minority view because it runs counter to a deep biological drive to have children. I wonder why. Um, But for that, it's his main reason why many dismiss the idea of antinatalism as mad or wicked. Though this does make sense as like to be like a legitimate position, that could really only be taken to be legitimate if it's within the context of variant living a more nihilistic and atheistic lifestyle. Um, because at least from the way I would see it, that is the only way I could think of where life has no value. And if it does, which I think is part of antinatalism of seeing some value in life, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, David goes on to say, quote, but even if life isn't pure suffering, Coming into existence can still be sufficiently harmful to render procreation wrong. Life is simply much worse than most people think, and there are powerful drives to affirm life even when life is terrible. People might be living lives that were actually not worth, li- with, not worth starting without recognizing that this is the case. End quote. And then moving on, he also says that if the quality of life can be underestimated, which uh, he says that something like depression or suicide is part of, it can also be overestimated, life can be. And then from there, he kind of builds up his argument for why antinatalism is a more legitimate view. So he goes on to say something to the effect of like, the worst pains are worse than the best pleasures are good. Quote, If you doubt this, ask yourself honestly whether you would accept a minute of the worst tortures in exchange for a minute or two of the greatest delights. And pain tends to last longer than pleasures. Compare the fleeting nature of sexual pleasures with the enduring character of much pain. So, we can understand right from in there that David's getting to the point of pain being more long-lasting and much worse than the greatness of whatever great experiences you have. So, he also says something, goes along with saying that, like, pain occurs quickly, but recovery is slow. Many desires are never satisfied, and if they are satisfying, they don't last long. Once a lower-level desire is satisfied, you obtain a higher level, you obtain higher level levels of desires which require more effort to satiate. So then seems to almost make this statement of then life is just a state of continual striving, which I think is something that he kind of builds off of from there even further, kind of reinforce it. 
He goes on to say, Even if one thinks that the bad is needed, perhaps to better appreciate the good, one must admit that it would be better if that were not the case. That is, life would be better if we could have the good without the bad. Now, one important explanation for this is that the deliberating is that in deliberating, sorry, with about whether their lives are worth starting, many people actually, but typically unwittingly, consider a different question, namely whether their lives are worth continuing. Because they imagine themselves not existing, the reflection on non-existence is with reference to a self that already exists. It is then quite easy to slip into thinking about the loss of that self, which is what death is. Given that life drive, it is not surprising that people come to the conclusion that existence is preferable. So from there we see that he kind of goes to say that this is why suicide is wrong, because of what he just said there. And he later goes on to say, quote, The difference between a life not worth starting and a life not worth continuing partly explains why antinatalism does not imply either suicide or murder. It can be the case that one's life is not worth starting without it being the case that one's life is not worth continuing. If the quality of one's life is still not bad enough to override one's interest in not dying, then one's life is still worth continuing, even though the current and future harms are sufficient to make it the case that one's life is not worth continuing. Moreover, because death is bad, even when it ceases to be all things considered, it is a consideration against procreation, as well as against murder and suicide. There are further reasons why, why an antinatalist should be opposed to murder. One of these is that the person should not force on another competent person a decision whether the latter's life has ceased to be worth continuing, because nobody can be certain about these matters. Such a decision should, where possible, be made and acted upon by the person who will either live or die as a result. So from there you can kind of make some conclusions from that. Though murder is clearly outlined as wrong, suicide seems to be handled relatively more leniently, but at the same time, I don't want to pull a straw man there, so I'm going to be trying to be careful with that assumption. Anyway, David continues saying that the case against procreation need not rest on the view for which I have been arguing that coming into existence is always worse than never existing. It is enough to show that the risk of serious harm is sufficiently high. So from here, he then takes a change in direction for the remainder of the article, which is not very long, of showing that not only is the risk of harm to a human person coming into the world high enough where it seems that, okay, it's better for the person not to exist. So he looks at the damage humans cause to each other and to the environment that the humans dwell in. And sees that, okay, humans do not, should not exist. And that kind of comes out with his conclusion, which he says, The question is not whether humans will become extinct, but rather when they will. If the antinatalist arguments are correct, it would be better that all things being equal, if this happens sooner rather than later, 
the sooner it happens, the more suffering and misfortune will be avoided, end quote. And that's pretty much concluding his article. So, what a depressing way of looking at life with such futility and pessimism. I don't think I could ever have that kind of view on life, to be honest. But saying that, is it not true, though, that like we, we see the satisfaction of pleasure being worth more than pain? Like, sure, feel pain, pain feels worse, but at least for me, and I'm sure many others out there, if not every, most of everybody, it would be more satisfying to have the moments of pleasure, though for it, because it is for like, sure, pain feels worse, for me at least, and I'm sure most of everybody else, but it would be more satisfying to have the moments of pleasure because it is well worth the suffering to get that moment of pleasure. It's worth working for because it has just that high value. Because it, and also like, it gives a person a reason to live and something to look forward to in life. Moving to a more Catholic perspective and really almost kind of a Christian way too, we obviously hold that good, hold the good above the suffering because God, who is goodness itself, is above evil and suffering because, I mean, the, the demons were created by God. They were originally angels, but now they're not. So as Catholics and Christians, we should see the suffering here on earth well worth going through to reach heaven and be in eternity with the one whom we are created in the image of, God. This would explain why there are martyrs, for they want to not only be with God forever, but they also want to share this with others so that we all may take part in the eternal mass. On top of that, there is something called redemptive suffering. Just as Christ suffered and died on the cross, so we too are called to do the same. Because Christ took on like literally all our suffering upon himself and offered himself as a sacrificial lamb to his father. And then with this in application to humanity, we can unite our suffering with Christ on the cross. As this moment is in time, does not last a moment, but rather like it, it transcends time as such, as it transcends time as such, to all moments of time, past, present, and future, because he's God, so he transcends time, all right? So with that, offering our daily sufferings to our Lord not only orients our persons to Christ, but would like also helps us to and others really to grow close to God. Just like Christ's offering of suffering saved all of humanity, like all our our own suffering when offered to God can save others in the world as it is offered like a petition or some kind of like intercession. And this is what is like really a truly true truly beautiful thing to have. Now switching gears, look back at antinatalism itself. All right, so looking at it initially, if, the, if like the position is openly considered, it seems to bring forth like a legitimate concern about the quality of life for those who are brought into the world. Because you know, we look around and we see pain and suffering in the world and we don't want anyone to suffer such atrocities. So it would seem better to not be born than to, and to have like as few people as possible undergo such experiences, which as we remember from the end of the article, David poses that it's better that nobody exists. But as Catholics, and really any real Christian, we'll immediately see that, A, this contradicts the first commandment to humanity, because God says, be fruitful and multiply. So, yeah, we got that. And B, 
we see the innate and infinite value of each life, as it is the fruit of the very act that models the trinity, sex. To think that it is best for best not to have children not only places like our will above God's, but it also denies a crucial part of the sexual act, which is bringing new life into the world. Because that is just how real a husband, husband and wife's love is for each other when, when properly ordered. So what can we do then? We must first give a pair of thanks to the Lord for the gift of life and the gift of Christ and him, himself for us and dying for us. Then we also ask for, then we ask for like the intercession of the Holy Family for all those who are antinatalists and holding up that position so that they may see the beauty and goodness of life and creation to its fullest, as well as for ourselves, really, that we may come to better model God and be the light for those who are lost and confused. Because the Holy Family is literally like the best to ask for intercession, especially for this kind of thing. Because, A, we got Mary, who, like, who else do you not want as a spiritual mother? Um, she was literally had Christ in her womb for nine months. What joy she must have had. And we also had St. Joseph, who is probably literally the best foster father anybody could ever have. And we have literally the God himself as a person. We can also pray for the intercession of Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, so that she may bring truth to the world. And by truth, I mean like the word incarnate to everybody. Because if everybody is enlightened with truth, we won't have such problems. So that is all I've got today. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe to the YouTubes. And as far as how frequent I want these podcasts out, um, I'm thinking twice a month, ideally. But because the holidays and end of semester are right around the corner, I have no guarantees. But I will try to do that, if at all possible. And also, I'm going to see about getting these up on iTunes because I know I like my podcast downloaded on my phone. And I don't think YouTube has that kind of capability, at least for the phones. So I'm going to look into that at some point in my life. I don't know when. And also, the uh, Cine Nomine Ubermensch t-shirts. Those will come out. I am dedicated to make sure those come out at some point in my life. I have been introduced into a new shirt company, so I have yet to contact them and try to get a quote for that. So I'm going to do that hopefully by the end of the month. And also, because this is a new podcast, I would love criticisms. Just like anything. Because I am a noob at this and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think that will be all. So I hope you guys have a great time. Pray. Pray always. Pray for the intercession of Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, and the Holy Family. Pray for all those who are suffering. Pox.